Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Deconstructed listeners. We're taking a break this week, but we'll be back the next. Believe it or not, as you're listening to this, I'm with a few thousand other Gen Xers at a fish concert in Mexico. Now, hopefully world war doesn't break out while I'm gone. To make up for my absence... I want to introduce you to the new season of Murderville, a podcast by my Intercept colleagues, investigative reporters Jordan Smith and Liliana Segura. We previously shared episode one with you, and if you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. This season, Jordan and Liliana take us to the death penalty capital of the country, Harris County, Texas, where they investigate a disturbing crime, a startling confession, and a story that doesn't add up. Today, I want to share episode two, which is all about the cops behind the investigation that led to a death penalty conviction. You can follow the whole series on your podcast app of choice and at theintercept.com. Just search for Murderville. Thanks for listening. Enjoy, and I'll see you soon. A quick listener note. This podcast contains adult language and descriptions of violence. Now stay tuned for NBC News special presentation. On December 6, 1990, NBC preempted their Friday night primetime drama Midnight Caller about a former cop-turned-talk-radio host for a show about real cops. Titled Houston Homicide, it was hosted by Tom Brokaw. And kind of like the old reality show Cops, but more cinema verite. Tonight, a detective story. We'll take you inside the working lives of Houston homicide investigators. We'll be with them during their daily struggles with the awful realities of America's sudden and alarming increase in the business of violent death. The show opens with the two lead detectives who investigated Edna Franklin's murder, Houston Police Sergeants Wayne Wendell and Wayman Allen. Hey, Good morning. morning. Hey, young man. Hey, Pa. How are you, man? Good. They pull up to the scene of a homicide. There's a man dead in a ditch by the side of the road. Alan is driving. It's one of those boxy, 80s, unmarked cop cars. Alan parks behind some crime scene tape. He grabs his jacket with one hand and his gun with the other, which he shoves into the waistband of his pants. Wendell follows behind Alan. He has a dark mustache and glasses. They lift the white sheet covering the body. After examining the scene, they go over to talk to the victim's brother. Let me just look at him a second. Yeah, I'm going to get him up there. Let's notice. Did you see that blood on that marker over there? Among the Houston homicide cops, Allen was known as a masterful interrogator. He would end up interrogating Charles Raby. Allen died in 2019. So this is the only time you're going to hear his voice. There's not any good time for you to talk to me, I know, and... and what we told you is, is devastating, I know. But we need to try to find out what happened to your brother, okay? Can you help me do that? In a tribute to Alan on Facebook, 
Wendell said they'd cleared so many cases together that he'd lost track. If you killed someone in Houston, Wendell wrote, you would not want Wayman on your case. He would find you, arrest you, and he knew how to get incriminating statements from suspects. From The Intercept, I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. Welcome back to Murderville, Texas. Episode 2, The Cops. Let's do a quick recap. After Edna Franklin's grandsons discovered her body, they told police they had a couple suspects in mind, including Charles Raby. He was on parole at the time. The police wanted to question him, but Charles was avoiding them, which only made them more suspicious. They caught up with him a few days later, and Charles confessed to the crime. But... No physical evidence tied him to the scene, and the cops have never found a murder weapon. One of the first things we look at when we start working on a case is the police report. Ideally, it should give you a detailed roadmap of how the investigation went, where it started, what was learned along the way, and how it was all resolved. The police report in Charles's case is just thin. To be sure, there are a lot of details, but mostly about how the inside of Franklin's house looked, where the couches were located, that there was a bag of old car parts in a corner. But aside from the crime scene investigator mentioning that he booked into evidence a small paring knife found in one of the bedrooms, there is no discussion of looking for a murder weapon. In fact, there's really no investigation documented in this report at all. Instead, the cops asked Franklin's grandsons who they thought did it, glommed onto Charles, and spent the next few days trying to run him down. How do we know there was no investigation? The cops had an arrest warrant for Charles the day after the murder. Think about that. Franklin's body isn't found until 10 p.m., The cops are there all night processing the scene, so they don't really know yet what kind of evidence they may or may not have. And then, armed with a hunch and a very general description of a dude seen jumping the neighbor's fence, they seek out a judge who will allow them to pick up Charles. Less than 24 hours later. Oh, and the warrant? It's for trespassing. For being in the neighbor's yard. But the search warrant application makes clear this is just a pretense for capital murder, a death-eligible offense. This is just a classic example of tunnel vision. Instead of investigating, developing evidence, and tracing it to a suspect, the Houston PD identified a suspect, then sought to confirm their belief in his guilt. With the police report leaving so many questions unanswered, we wanted to talk to the cops who worked the Franklin case back in 1992. We found Sergeant Wendell on Facebook. He retired in 2005 after a 34-year career with the Houston Police Department. This freed him up for what is clearly a true passion, photography. His landscape and travel photos are all over his Facebook page which is otherwise full of right-wing memes. 
Wendell said that working homicide for the Houston PD back in the day was intense. You had basically about a three-day window to clear your, your case uh, before you got another one. And so, but we would get, get a case about every fourth or fifth day, uh, a new homicide would come up. And that's after going through 30 detectives. In other words, they were trying to close cases as quickly as possible. Here's Sergeant Dwayne Shirley. He helped Ellen and Wendell on the Franklin case. In fact, it was Shirley who drove Charles to the police station the day he was arrested for Franklin's murder. I spent 26 years in homicide. The caseload when I hit there, when I first got to homicide in 1980, the homicides were were streaming up every year. Homicides peaked the following year at 701. By the time Franklin was killed, that number had dropped. But per capita, 1992 was one of the worst years for murder in Houston's history. Still, Shirley told us that they were really good at catching the bad guys. Actually, unbelievably good. He said that in his day, the clearance rate in the homicide division was close to 90%. This claim struck us as problematic because the national average is much lower. And police departments have been known to pad their numbers. Closing a case doesn't necessarily mean solving it. Of course, a clearance rate as high as Shirley described would be great if they were actually getting the right person for the crime. Getting the wrong person in a murder case leaves a killer on the streets. But Shirley also suggested that they did pretty much whatever they wanted to close cases, without a whole lot of oversight. You can't do now what we did then. What do you mean? Well, look at all the scrutiny that's being placed on on police officers right now. Mm -hmm. Every single move they make is subject to videotape. And you think that... Hamstring? Sure, it affects it, it. It hamstrings the entire police department. Why do you think that is? I mean, like in homicide, why? Why would that? Do you think that would have impacted your work? Uh, well, I, I, I think I better not discuss it. But uh, you, you better not discuss it. But we were, uh, we were given a free reign in solving a case. And Shirley had a story about Wendell to describe the kinds of things they would do to investigate murder cases. I have one instance here that which was probably not politically correct in today's climate, referring to Wayne Wendell. We were once uh, conducting surveillance on a suspect in a black area of town, and we didn't have access to some black officers to help us stake out this location. So Wayne Wendell dressed up in blackface and conducted surveillance on this location, which, uh, you know, today would probably get him fired and charged. But (laughs) do you remember when that was or what what the case was? I don't remember what the case was, but it was over on the east side of town in the ghetto. And uh, I remember everybody was kidding him about dressing up in blackface so he wouldn't get uh, recognized as being a police officer on surveillance. But the deal is, there was no racial overtones in his actions. We were trying to, to arrest a murder suspect. We were obviously pretty shocked by this story. 
When we later wrote to Wendell, he confirmed it and elaborated. I rode around Fifth Ward in the back seat of a yellow cab, he wrote. We were looking for a serial rapist murderer. This might be a good moment to make clear. Charles Raby is white, and so was Edna Franklin. But Wendell's actions here speak volumes about the culture that existed within the Homicide Bureau and their attitude towards the communities they were supposed to be protecting. We also asked Shirley about something Charles says happened on the way to the police station. That Shirley told him they could charge his girlfriend, Mary Alice Gomez, with aiding and abetting him for not turning Charles in. He names you specifically as the the officer who took him into custody, I believe, drove him to the station and According to him, you had said something to the effect of, you know, his girlfriend could be charged with aiding and abetting. But does any of that sort of sound familiar to you? Well, very slightly, but but let me explain something to you. Nothing says an investigator has to tell the truth to a suspect. I I would would lie to a suspect in a minute. It wouldn't bother me. I'm not going to threaten him. I'm not going to beat him. But if I, if I had to lie to get him to tell me a confession or the truth, I'd lie. We told Shirley that Charles maintains his innocence. And we wanted to know, with the rise of DNA testing and exonerations, has he ever worried about the possibility of executing an innocent person? It's never given me pause. Ever. Because if I ever worked a case and I had doubts about whether or not the the suspect did it, I wouldn't have charged him. I wouldn't have arrested him. But if I arrest him on a murder charge that he didn't do, that means the person who did it is still out there. Right. You know how they do it in Russia, right? When they give you a death penalty, they, they lock you up. They don't give you a date for execution or anything. All they do, you stay there. It may be there a week, it may be there a month, it may be there a year. They walk up to your cell, take you out of the cell, walk you out back and shoot you in the head with a nine millimeter. That's how they do it. They don't, it's no fancy stuff about it. <laughs> are you, are you, are you saying that we should do it more like that? No, I'm not saying we're doing like, like that, but I should, but a, 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 a suspect should have one appeal and after that he should be executed. For the record, that's not actually how they do it in Russia. Technically, the death penalty has been on hold there since the 90s. Some of the most detailed information in the police report was written by the crime scene investigator. He diagrammed and described the scene. A man named Jim Norris. He had a decidedly less cavalier attitude about the system than Sergeant Shirley. This is because Norris not only saw the system from a cop's point of view, but later from the other side, too. My name is Jim Norris. I am, I was a crime scene investigator with the Homicide Division uh, at this time in 1992. Right now, I'm uh, 67 years old. I'm a pastor at a small country church, and I work the night shift. It was nothing for me to catch a scene at... uh, uh, two o'clock in the morning, and then 
worked the entire uh, rest of the night on the scene and then all the day shift uh, doing paperwork. We sent Norris his portion of the police report. He recognized it as his work, but has no specific recollection of it. The murder took place toward the end of his time with HPD. Norris worked Houston homicide for about a decade, before leaving the state for a series of career changes, including a short stint as an emu farmer. That was, I picked those emus up in uh, Texas, and it was a big thing back then. And it was, you know, a shot in the dark sort of thing, but I took those emos to North Carolina with me. More importantly, after moving to Indiana, he began doing work for criminal defendants. I was a a private investigator, and I concentrated mostly on uh, uh, criminal defense work. Uh, And that usually involved uh, death penalty cases. Norris knows the system sometimes gets things wrong. In a 2001 profile of him in the Times of Northwest Indiana headlined Gumshoe with Gumption, Norris talked about his passion for investigating wrongful convictions especially in death penalty cases. If every time 100 people flew in an airplane, one of them died, people would stop flying, he told the paper. But we may have one out of 100 inmates sitting on death row with no connection to the crime. Norris is opposed to capital punishment now. He saw serious flaws in the evidence that police and prosecutors relied upon to send people to die. I think that eyewitness testimony was probably the biggest thing that deterred me from believing that the death penalty was right. And then when you got into uh, DNA and you found out how many times um, blood typing was wrong uh, and how many people were convicted on that basis, then that kind of solidified the idea we need to take a a step back from the death penalty and uh, until we can get it more right than what we have. Norris talked about a couple things that we know are leading causes of wrongful convictions, including erroneous eyewitness identification, which is the most common factor found in DNA exonerations. And along with the confession, a key component of Charles's case. Remember, Edna Franklin's neighbor, Hillary Truitt, told the cops that he and his brother-in-law had seen a guy jump the fence from Franklin's backyard the night of the murder. And even though the pair said they didn't get a good look at the guy's face, the cops decided that it was Charles they had seen. But even under the best circumstances, eyewitness IDs are notoriously unreliable. Norris told us that it wasn't until after he left HPD that he learned just how unreliable they are. And I think things like that bothered me for a long time. I've tested myself and my own recollection of, uh, you know, just pick anybody in a restaurant someday and look at them for a minute and then ask yourself the next day what you can tell me about it. Could you 100% sure pick that person out of a lineup or photo array? How often, if you did that, would you be right? Norris also talked about false confessions, which have been implicated in hundreds of wrongful convictions. False confessions, I think, fall into two categories. Uh, A forced false confession 
and a voluntary false confession. And uh, certainly a forced false confession is, is um, probably the saddest thing that uh, um, an investigator can be accused of. However, that doesn't negate the fact that there are voluntary false confessions. Uh, and I believe that they're in abundance. One of the things that I have found over the years uh, in confessions is that uh, a guy will say whatever he thinks he needs to say that will benefit him at the time. Certainly the one that is a self-interest uh, false confession is, is something that you just, you got to go back to step one and, and see, does, does the evidence support what he says? Today, Charles insists he didn't murder Edna Franklin. He says the confession he gave the police was false. Now, you may be thinking, come on, confess to something I didn't do? No way. Let alone something so horrible as murder. Something that could send me to the execution chamber? Not gonna happen. A lot of people think that no one would confess to something they didn't do. They just can't conceive of it, especially when the stakes are so high. But false confessions do happen more than you'd think. The National Registry of Exonerations catalogs all the factors that have led to wrongful convictions in the U.S. Since 1989, there have been more than 2,900 exonerations. More than 360 of those cases involved false confessions. 27 were death penalty cases. We're going to dig deeper into false confessions. But first, you need to hear what Charles has to say about how all of this happened. We went to see Charles in December 2019. It was just before Christmas. Texas's death row is in Livingston, down the road from the execution chamber in Huntsville. To get inside, you have to go through security and a series of gates that lock behind you. Before you reach the visitation area, you pass a glass display cabinet full of handmade crafts. Many are decorated with characters from Disney. They're made by prisoners. The visiting area is stark and has all the charm of an old high school cafeteria. There are rows of booths. On one side is where we'll sit. On the other side are cages behind plexiglass-like windows. That's where prisoners are brought in and uncuffed. To communicate, you have to use an old handheld phone receiver. It was hard to hear Charles, let alone record him, on the other side of that receiver. So you're gonna have to bear with us. I'll just start. This is pause right now, but I'll just start rolling. Start so rolling. Gonna work for you? Yeah, I think yeah, it's gonna work. I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Let's start at 12:39. All right. Sounds good. Thank okay. you. Hey, Charles. Good. Nice to meet you. Yeah, it's gonna be. Charles has blue eyes and a small, upturned nose. He was dressed in the all-white prison scrubs issued by the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. 
At 49, he was a slightly doughier version of the 24-year-old who first went to death row. He was also visibly nervous, like really nervous. He seemed apologetic about his demeanor. At one point, he told us that he was getting short of breath. I don't do a lot of talking, he said. We only had an hour, and we had a lot of questions. Going in, we understood his explanation for why he confessed to Edna Franklin's murder. He said it was to protect his girlfriend, Mary Alice Gomez. But we wanted to hear more about what happened at the police station, especially his interactions with Sergeant Wayman Allen. Remember, Charles's interrogation wasn't recorded. Charles had been in and out of the system his whole life. Growing up, his father was absent and his mother was neglectful. He was repeatedly removed from her home by the state's child welfare agency. He barely ever went to school. Instead, he ran the streets. Charles told us that he'd heard the cops were looking for him on October 16, 1992, the day after the murder. But he really didn't know why. He'd only recently gotten out of prison. Just knowing that the cops were looking for him was enough to make him want to avoid them. Mary Alice had told him that the cops had asked her to call if she saw him. Charles says that's why he decided to turn himself in. He was worried she might get in trouble. But before he could, the cops showed up. Here's Charles. And I tell Mary, you know, well, they're here. You know, told me, I'll come out, I'm under arrest, you know. And he didn't really tell me what right then and there. But later on, I mean, then... You know, I told Mary to stay in the house. I said, you can stay here. And they said, you know, they asked me about who she was. And I told her, that's my girlfriend. You know, she, you know, she can stay here. Next thing I know, they're taking her with taking her out. And I asked them, where are y'all taking her? They told me they were taking her home. So I really thought they were taking her home. So then we go we go to the police station and then we start questioning. And I, Man, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about or anything like that. He recalled going to the bathroom and hearing the baby crying. And Mary Alice's voice. He was surprised. He thought the cops had taken them home. He asked Alan why they were at the station. He said, well, we just want to talk to them and everything. No questions. See what she might know. I said, well, she don't know nothing. She don't know none of them people over there, you know. Well, I'm just kind of paraphrasing everything, really, you know. But, you know, later on, I, I, you know, he, he, he seen how focused I was on talking about her. I don't want to talk about nothing else, but why, I want, why the hell she's here, you know, what if I want her to leave, right? And it, that's when he said, well, you know, we, we, we told her to call us if she's seen you, and then the next thing we know, we find her hiding out with you. And I told me, we wasn't hiding now, you know what I mean? We're at my house, you know what I mean? I got to admit that he never actually told me we're going to arrest her, but he gave me the, the impression, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not stupid, you know what I mean? I know we could. We could arrest her. We, you know we could do this and we could do that. To me, that's you can, and then you will if I don't start talking to you about the things you, you want me to say. Charles told us that when he'd gotten arrested with his friends growing up, it was every man for himself inside the police station. But with Mary Alice, it was different. He didn't want her to get in trouble because of him. It seems clear Alan saw that he cared about her and that he could use that as leverage to get Charles to cooperate. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been in trouble quite a bit. I'm not sure you know that. You know, I've been in jail. I've been, ever since I was a little kid, I've been in attitude now, you know, uh, in a jail. 
But this is the first time I ever had anybody use somebody I love against me like that. You know, I mean, this is someone totally innocent, you know, didn't have no reason to be there. Then you're talking about taking her, taking the baby away from her. I'm not just, you know, I mean, they, they, they really had me, you know, I mean, I don't know other way to explain it. I just never, they, they found my weak spot, you know, so I just started telling them whatever I thought they wanted to hear, you know. One thing the cops did do before getting the arrest warrant for Charles was to speak to people who had seen him the day of Edna Franklin's murder. Like the woman who said he'd sat in front of her house, cleaning his fingernails with a pocket knife. So it wasn't hard for Alan to trip Charles up when he claimed to be somewhere else. He was just asking me, you know, well, where have you been? What have you been doing? And I, and I kept lying to him. You know, he said, well, where was you over here? He said, he said like, what'd you do that day? I said, well, I stayed in my, my grandmother's neighborhood. He said, well, do you, do you ever go, did you go over here? I'm like, well, fuck, how the hell do you know I go over there? I went over there. I said, yeah, I went over there, you know, and then it's just these little lies. Mm-hmm. So then when I start finally telling the truth, it's like he ain't, he ain't trying to hear. He done caught me in so many of these little lies, you know. So then I mean, he, he, but he, but he tracked me all the way from my brother's house to my friend's church, uh, friend's house. He, he, he tracked me from all the way over there to the neighborhood. He, he's putting me well, in this neighborhood. Not only did Alan get Charles to put himself in the neighborhood, he got Charles to say he knocked on Franklin's front door. Once he got me to admit that I was there at the house, that I, I actually knocked on the door, that was it. That's all he wanted. He, he placed me at the house, and I was there. I mean, you know, so, yeah, I don't know. I was willing to do everything, say anything you wanted me to to get Mary and the baby out of there. You know, so. so, Charles said, he gave Alan a story. I don't know why I was lying to him like I was, in other words. You know I mean? I just didn't, it's just what I do. You know, it's what I, I grew up like a, I grew up on the street, just don't tell the cops nothing, right? So uh, he was just having me, well, what'd you do? By this time, I know somebody's dead. He done told me that somebody's dead, right? And that's when I told him that, well, I guess I went in the front door, just walked in, you know, knocked on the door and just walked in. And there she is, and I just grabbed her and, you know, and, you know, and did what I did. But, you know, it's just so many details, it just, it just doesn't make no sense. You know I mean? Nothing. Charles told us that Alan fed him details about the case. Police thought the murderer had left through Franklin's back door and had been seen by neighbors jumping a fence. So, Charles said, he fed those details right back to Alan. He said, what about the back door? I said, what about the back door? He said, you go out the back door? I said, I guess I went out the back door then, you know? So, he said, was you confronted by somebody by staying out of the yard? I said, yes, somebody, I guess somebody told me to stay out of the yard, you know? So Ultimately, Charles insisted that despite what he told the cops... He did not kill Edna Franklin. All I know is I, did, I didn't have no blood. I didn't kill the woman. I didn't, you know. I feel for Lee and them, you know, but I did, I did not do it, you know. I mean, that's all I can say. We obviously didn't get a chance to ask everything we wanted during that visit. But in our mind, that was no big deal. The way it works is that reporters get one visit with the same person every 90 days. So we were already planning our next visit for April 2020. That didn't happen. Instead, the pandemic would end up locking down the prison for more than a year. Our reporting, like everything else, suddenly ground to a halt. We would have to continue our investigation remotely. Of course, there was no way we could have known what was coming. Before we left Livingston, we exchanged Christmas gifts in the parking lot. Then, two days later, I was checking Twitter on my phone when I saw a tweet directed at me from a woman I didn't recognize. She said, 
I certainly hope Charles Buster Raby hasn't convinced you he's innocent. Her name sounded familiar, but I didn't know why. It was clearly someone who knew the case, but this was still pretty early in our reporting, and I just couldn't place it. So I called Jordan. I told her I'd gotten a strange tweet about Charles. It came from a woman named Linda McLean. Jordan did recognize the name. That's Edna Franklin's daughter. Next time on Murderville, Texas, more about Linda. And Charles Raby goes on trial for his life. I heard stories about prosecutors who called themselves the Silver Needle Society because they had sent men to death row. It haunted me for a long time that that I decided that that guy was supposed to die. Do you still want to confess to this? Uh, I wouldn't have at all. I would have ran screaming from the room. Murderville, Texas is a production of The Intercept and First Look Media. Andrea Jones is our story editor. Julia Scott is senior producer. Trug Wynn is our podcast fellow. Laura Flynn is supervising producer. Fact-checking by Miri Jessuthasen. Special thanks to Jack Desidoro and Holly Demuth for additional production assistance. Our show was mixed by Rick Kwan with original music by Zach Young. Legal review by David Brelo. Executive producers are Roger Hodge and Christy Gressman. For The Intercept, Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief. I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. You can read show transcripts and see photos at theintercept.com slash murderville. You can also follow us on Twitter at Liliana Sakura and at chronic underscore Jordan. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash donate. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.